So, welcome everyone. Uh, on today's kind of podcast, we have Paris Patel, who's a senior researcher. Uh, and we've, I mean, I've, I know Paris kind of from our day jobs. Uh, I've done some work with him around kind of the trauma informed care project. Uh, and kind of today, we're going to kind of talk about some some things around kind of heart rate variability. So, and I'll let Paris kind of talk to us about that because that's quite a, it sounds quite complex, doesn't it? But like when you kind of break it down, it's quite a simplistic thing. Uh, Paris, do you want to kind of tell us a little bit about kind of you, a little bit of your background and stuff? Of Yeah, yeah, great. Firstly, thank you for having me on your podcast. Yeah, yeah. Very exciting. So my background is basically, I, I worked in science, biomedical science as an undergraduate and then went and did a master's in neuroscience. And from that, I did a PhD in psychophysiology. So I married the two together, looking at the heart and the brain and the interlink between the two. And in this field is where we identified uh, heart rate variability. It is a measure that's been used in physiological science for uh, for decades, if not longer. But it's been uh, more prevalent in mental health for the last 20, 30 years or so. Right. So it's still relatively new. There's still a lot of understanding in how heart rate variability can be used in mental health. And now currently I'm working in the trauma-informed care program in the local NHS Trust, working as a research, senior researcher in implementing an evidence base on how, how implementing trauma-informed care can change services and how that can impact not only staff, but service user experience as well. And one of, one of the roles here is, is using uh, alternative uh, therapies so using stuff like singing, dancing, and using heart rate variability biofeedback in helping people regulate themselves and how that can help their well-being and mental health. Right, cool. You're making us sound like really, really thick now, Paris, with all your qualifications, and, and we're just measly nurses. <laughs> well, I think it's important to going into the real world before so yeah. I continue the education as long as I could. <laughs> yeah, hide away in education. Yeah. Um, it's interesting stuff, and I think that a lot of our listeners that come to the podcast, I think we'll, we'll come to this, maybe it's just wanting kind of an understanding on kind of general kind of mental health, anxiety, depression. Um, and I guess when someone says heart rate variability, to a lot of people, to a lot of lay people, they won't have a clue what that means. And I, I would say certainly, admittedly, it's only maybe something I've really known of for the last couple of years, maybe. Yeah. Um, so would it be helpful just to kind of for the for the listeners that maybe are thinking what is HRV? I've, I might have heard of it. It's something that maybe I've read an article on, or someone's mentioned it, or I haven't got a clue what they're talking about. Just to explain kind of briefly what what it is. Yeah, absolutely. So heart variability is we're looking at the time gap between each heartbeat. So if we say someone's heartbeat sixty beats per minute, one might presume that that's one beat every second. But actually, it's not. There'll be there'll be slight millisecond variations. So one one heartbeat to second heartbeat, there might be a time gap of 0.579 seconds. Mm. The second consecutive heartbeat might be 0.63. So looking at that time gap can give us indications on how the physiology of the body is functioning. If we're if we're looking at a series of heartbeats and we identify that the time gap's getting shorter, we can assume that. This, this is a, a sympathetic or a stress response within the body. If the time gap between each heartbeat is getting longer, we can assume that that's a parasympathetic or a relaxation response within the body. Right. So just by looking at this measure, we can almost understand what's physiologically happening in the body. So it's like an indicator of a kind of a wellness, of a physical wellness, or what the body's wanting to pull towards? It can, it can be influenced by many things, whether it's what's in your surroundings, what your thoughts might be at that time. I mean, often we can be sat at home in a very relaxed environment, but be thinking about work, which is can, can be very stressful, which then gets the heart rate up. Although you're sat on the sofa and you might be trying to relax, it's not as relaxing as you might think it should be. Yeah. So it's, it's a very sensitive measure and it, it's picked up uh, in, within milliseconds and it impacts the heart rate immediately. So what what does that what does that so say if someone has a like a, a good all round heart rate variability score, what would to the layperson what would that mean? So when you've got good variability, it reflects your ability to or your resilience 
Mm. So if, if, if you imagine an elastic band in between your fingers, and if that elastic band is static and you have a sudden influx of stress and you stretch out to its furthest point, what's likely to happen to that elastic band? Yeah, it's going to snap, isn't it? It's going to snap, yeah. But when we think about variability and our heart rates, if we're continuously stretching and relaxing, stretching and relaxing, and we have that in sudden influx of stress, what's then going to happen to the elastic band? Because it's more resilient, isn't it, to snapping? Yeah. Yeah, so, yeah. so, so the, for the ability to get back to its normal shape and functioning is increased because we're exercising its elasticity. For us, it'd be high rate variability. So the more variability we have, the the more we can build our resilience. Mm. Cool. And that, I guess that's something that kind of people might feel a little bit kind of confused about, thinking, well, stress is bad. I, mean, I can't, I shouldn't feel stressed, but actually having a feeling stress and being able to be resilient towards stress and having that natural variability between parasympathetic and sympathetic is a good, healthy People might think, oh, no, it should just be all about being kind of physically calm and relaxed. And I should always be relaxed because relaxed is good and stressed and tensed and in, in fight or flight is bad. But actually that says, well, no, these are normal states, normal human states. Absolutely. I mean, stress is one of the things that wakes us up in the morning, hmm? knowing that we've got to get ourselves to work. It's, if we knew we didn't have to, we may lay around in bed all day. So some, some of these stresses that get us to function, get us to kick our side of the bumps and to yeah. Uh, yeah, get yeah. what we should be doing. Yeah. And other times, like you say, it can be harmful. So it's about that balance that you mentioned and exercising it in a, in a way that best suits an individual. So I suppose a curious question that probably Pete would ask, and I'm asking myself at the moment, is the good old kind of analogy of kind of the stress is bad for us, that cultural thing as in, you know, we, we need to avoid it at all costs. So what would be the difference between, like, I suppose when, you, when you're looking at heart rate variability, it's, it's putting yourself in stressful situations, which is almost rehearsed, so like exercise or, or something like that. So that's going to short-term stress the body out, which is going to improve heart rate variability. That's my understanding of it so, from one perspective. But what about kind of when people are really stressed, so if you have an increased variability, yeah. for example, um, if you have a phone call with your manager and it's a very stressed phone call, yeah. during that phone call, your heart rate is going to increase and increase and increase. When you've got a high variability, the time it takes for your heart rate to go back to a normal beat per minute for your body is mm. quicker than someone that will not have high ver uh, variability. Right. Okay. So it's that, it's that Sometimes it might be coined as the bounce back ability, so the resilience, yeah. how, how back without it damaging your health. Mm. Um, prolonged exposure to stress can lead to uh, damage to health and exhaustion. Mm. So it's being aware of that and being able to uh, self-regulate to a point where it's not physically damaging you and you can relax again. I guess it's a bit, a bit like, I suppose, if you're an athlete and you're pushing yourself and physically exerting yourself, um that's you know and then maybe your heart rate goes up for the exercise that you do and then you might stop and then measure your heart rate and if your heart rate goes down to a nice stable kind of level fairly quickly you'd say that person's physically fit you know the heart rate's not stayed high for too long and that would be good wouldn't it i guess i guess if an athlete pushed themselves too much and exerted themselves too much a bit like someone that put themselves under too much stress that then becomes the bad thing doesn't it rather than you know the exercise itself isn't bad the stress yeah. itself isn't yeah. bad it's the quantity of it well you hit the nail on the head there i mean athletes use it for burnout so it is because it's a very sensitive measure you can tell how if you're overworking yourself if you're overworking yourself you're more prone to injury so using heart rate variability to understand how much stress is in your body and how your body's functioning if it's functioning in a high sympathetic state it might not be the best idea to train Mm. Maybe do something alternative so that your body can recover. And I know um, some of the people that I've worked with previously, including the um, Manchester United Football Club, for example, Arsenal Football Club, they're really interested in using heart rate variability for their athletes to for, for burnout, but also for mental performance as well. So it's mm. it's that ability, the, the pressure that they have, for example, taking a, a penalty kick in front of thousands of people. It's something that can't be replicated, but 
for them to be within their body and block out everything. And I'm sure if you meditate, you'll, you'll, you'll know that once you get into that state, whatever's going around you, it doesn't impact you because you're in that relaxation state. So practicing and doing the breathing and increasing your heart rate variability gets you into that zone. It's yeah. interesting, isn't it? And I've got, um, have you heard of whoop straps? A whoop strap? I've, I've come across it before, yeah. Yeah, so I've got, I'm wearing one now. Um, oh, and it's literally, it's not, um, not trying to like uh, sell whoop I, I don't know whether we'll, I suppose, we'll, yeah, they might give us some money tomorrow. So <laughs> <laughs> we advertise by whoop. But I guess the idea of a whoop strap is it literally all it measures basically is, is your heart rate variability and it comes up with like an algorithm. Um, of what your score is, you know, in relation to your age and, and, and your lifestyle and things like that. And then you kind of, so that, I guess how it says is you might have, say, a score of 40. Um, now, your score doesn't mean that if someone has a score of 30 that yours is, you're better or worse. But then what your aim is is to try and kind of improve that score and lower that score. And the lower that score, the better you are in terms of your, your wellness. So I use it when I, so I do a, quite, a, quite a bit of CrossFit. And this score will come up with like a, what's called the, 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 the heart rate variability that it measures. The, the, it will come up with like a strain score and like a recovered score as well. So it'll tell me, like you've just said there, how recovered I am in that day and how hard I should push myself that day, whether I should just take it easy and just do something kind of steady state or whether I'm, I'm ready to kind of compete and work hard. And that for me has transformed how I train. So sometimes I might kind of think, Oh, I do feel a bit tired and I don't really fancy this, but my whoop stops saying that I'm actually quite ready to go. And weirdly, when I jump in the exercise, I do well. And sometimes the opposite will tell me. So it's it's you trust your senses and you trust how you feel when you do when you want to put yourself in a special situation like exercise. But having like an indicator where you know this whoop stops giving you something else extra from a deep physiological kind of data is really helpful. I think. Yeah, I, th I think you hit two key important points there. Is the first point about so, so some devices might give you reference ranges, but heart rate variability is very, very individualistic. So because it takes into account how you process the information in your external environment and your internal environment, what might be 40 for a good score for one person might not be the good score for another person. So I, I, would, I would avoid trying to use reference ranges. And when, whenever, when I've done it in research, for example, I've always taken a baseline for a person as a starting point and say, this is this is where we are now. If we do six weeks of breathing exercises, for example, let's compare it to your bracing rather than the national average because everyone's so individual, everyone's had different experiences and we don't want everyone to be in the same reference range. We just want people to improve. And the second point you mentioned about um, you're, you're feeling not, not feeling so uh, great, but then you get a great session out. It, mm. it just shows the power of the brain. Mm. It just shows that how your thoughts can influence it. But actually, you, your brain's telling you you're tired, but when you've got that stimulation, actually, I should push myself. When you get past that initial thought and get into the exercise and you get into it, you probably feel much better because you've pulled, you've pulled through it and got past those signals that your brain's telling you. Absolutely. Yeah, it's moving past that, isn't it? I guess being a CBT therapist, you kind of work on that model of everything's connected, your thoughts, feelings, behaviours and your and your physiology. And I think we get taught in, in therapy to kind of, you know, you work a lot on the cognitive and the behavioural aspect of, of, of people. But the physiological aspect is massive, isn't it? And, and that drives a lot. So being able to listen to the body, whether it's through data, through collecting data somewhere or just physically kind of sitting there and you know, meditation is a good way of doing that, isn't it? Kind of seeing where you are in terms of your physical state in, in any one moment. I think people are so rushed around and, and life's so busy, you don't get time to sit and go, where am I? Where's my body right now? Mm. Um, yeah. You know, looking at mindfulness, for example, Alan, when, when you kind of do a body scan, you'll yeah. kind of notice yeah. stuff on your body that you actually never picked up until you were sat there and actually purposefully kind of noticing. Yeah. And I remember just reflecting on, I don't know, uh, retreat a few years back with Paris and how and you you measured kind of the heart rate variability of all the participants uh, and I remember mine I mean I've been kind of meditating for years and and I thought because I didn't know the scores at the time so I was like Paris kind of hooked me up to the laptop and kind of the, the monitors on and I thought high score meant a bad Good. score oh, bad so, way, yeah, yeah. and then I was I was kind of I was looking at the screen I was like oh 85 oh that must be bad so then i started to kind of just 
bring more awareness to my breathing and kind of sync my breathing with kind of my mind and, and everything else. And the scores were going up and I thought, hey, what's going on here? I'm trying to calm <laughs> myself down. And as the more I was breathing, the score was going up, which at the time I didn't realise what the scores were. <laughs> but And then Paris kind of just spoke to me about kind of how meditation and kind of bringing harmony to the brain and the heart and the breath kind of brings everything together and then everything starts to sing from the same song sheet with all our organs and all the rest of it which yeah. i found fascinating just so there's, for- there's a couple of points that you've picked on there so and, and richard as well so one thing about is neuroception is, is, is listening to the signals from the body and one classical example i like to give is um come lunchtime if you're sat at your desk and you've not got any meetings and you're aware it's coming to lunchtime how hungry do you feel I mean, when it gets to 12 o'clock and at half 11 and I'm not in a meeting and I'm aware it's getting to, I get hungrier and hungrier and hungrier. Before, before, just before 12, I'll probably start eating my lunch. But if I've got a meeting at half 11 that goes until 3 o'clock, because my mind's preoccupied and I don't have those signals coming from the brain thinking, oh, it's lunchtime. When it gets to 3 o'clock and I finish that meeting and then I might hear my tummy rumble, they're like, oh, I've not had my lunch. And that, that, that listening to the tummy, the tummy rumble, that's the signals from the body, my body telling me that it's hungry. Actually, the mind telling me it's 12 o'clock, it's lunchtime, is, is, is what, what's happened in the fast-paced society where, right, let's just get our lunch at 12 so we can work till 5, then we'll go home, then we'll have tea at 6 o'clock, we'll be in bed by half 9, 10 o'clock, we'll wake up at 7 o'clock for the next day, which is such this routine that fast-paced society that we don't listen to the signals from the body. And I'm sure Alan might have experienced that when you take through people through like meditation and body scans, when they have that moment to actually quieten the brain down and listen to this, people are often sometimes say, well, I fell asleep. And I say to them, actually, you did well, because if you fell asleep, that's your brain telling you that you're tired mm-hmm. and you need to get rest. The fact that it's that stress that we mentioned before, that's keeping them up and alert. But when they've quietened the prefrontal cortex, which is the thinking part of the brain, the body is told them that actually you're tired, you need to get some sleep, you need to get to rest. So actually when they say that, oh, my meditation didn't go well, I fell asleep, it's actually, actually no, it went well, you listened to your body and your body did what responded how it should have. So Paris, is is the, the new reception that you mentioned, is that the same or similar to interoceptive awareness? Because that's a big term, isn't it? But kind of interoceptive awareness, my understanding of it is, is being aware of the bodily sensations within listening to the cues within our body, the physical sensations. Is that right? Yeah, that's, that's my, completely my fault. I've got them two mixed around. So interoception is bo- new, um, bodily signals. Neuroception yeah. is signals from the environment. Yeah. 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 <laughs> those, those two deceptions is sometimes what I... Uh, I know. <laughs> yeah. It's all big jargonized words, isn't it? When you, you know, to simplify, though, it is it's about again, like you said, life's busy. Our heads full of to-do lists. We're at work. There's so many people, you know, kind of pulling on you. So many kind of issues pulling on you, and you're kind of there. You're not in looking inside, thinking about where you are, thinking of, even thinking about your surroundings in a different way. Like what's actually going on here? Because we're so much in our heads cognitively, aren't we? Kind of overthinking and and working which is kind of a, a, a symptom of modern world, isn't it? We have to be because that's how we're kind of, we kind of get through each day, but taking that time. And we've been a scientist, big believer in uh, evolution and uh, the way our brains have developed and formed over the years. Before the, the amygdala, the part of the brain, that's the control center for the, uh, the fight or flight response or the relaxation response, that was for survival and looking after ourselves. Throughout throughout the years, have, as there's been more and more stimulations, our brains have not adapted and kept up the pace of our society. So we can be sat at home sitting on the sofa and we'll hear a scream and almost our brains will click and be like, fight or flight, what's happening? But because if you've got children and uh, there's regular screams, over time you become more and more aware sure. of it. And you might not be stimulated in the same way. But you can see how over time, I mean, when we go for a walk down the street and you see so many advertisements flashing at you, the traffic noises, our brains are still, you hear a car that's horning a street away, but it's still an alert signal for us. And we're processing that sometimes as a fight or flight response. So we go into that sympathetic drive. Mm. And actually, there's no warrant for that, is there, I guess? 
I mean, I, I guess you think about yeah, human evolution. Eight thousand years ago, we were hunter gatherers. The species have been around for what three million years or something. Eight thousand years is nothing, is it, to to be this civilized kind of species that's trying to kind of run in a modern society with big cities and busyness and and yeah, you're right. We're kind of we're going into fight and flight mode. Well, you're both, I suppose, fight and flight mode. Um, through things that you know, we, we the word didn't exist. A car didn't exist eight thousand years ago. It was a tiger. It was a bear. It was another tribe. You know, they were and they were all very easily identifiable threats. Oh, that's probably going to eat me. Or I need to eat that, and I need to go into my drive and, and drive state. Whereas now it's car beeping isn't going to kill you but your body is still reacting to that isn't it and and, and it would be it would be very weird if you decided to eat a car wouldn't it this put day. a car down with a spear just you'd be, <laughs> be assessed straight away wouldn't you really impressive you can imagine on the side of a road trying to eat a car because you were stressed what would that with, look like with your spear where's the weak point <laughs> <laughs> that's it isn't it we're kind of we, we're not we haven't we can't evolve that quickly um, so we're kind of these kind of clever apes, aren't we, that overthink a lot and get stressed yeah. about stuff that really we would never have been stressed about. Well, I mean, if, if, if you, if you, for the for the younger listeners, I mean, if you put it, if, you, if you've had a, a Windows ninety eight computer mm-hmm. and try run FIFA twenty one on it now, what's the likeliness of them two working? <laughs> yeah. You know, it's a completely outdated, isn't it? And it's not been updated into what what, what the technology is now. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, absolutely. Social media kind of interconnected. There's, you know, there's online threat now, isn't it? There's, you know, people kind of comparing themselves to, to kind of people online, and yeah, it's um, it's difficult for the brain to process that, isn't it? And to know what to do with it, it's just you're left with it, aren't you? How would Paris? How would heart rate variability, kind of, for for the general person who wants to look at heart rate variability is like an, a a a driver or like a, a motivation thing for their overall health. Where would where would they look to start with? Because when you when you do look into it, it's quite a complicated thing, isn't it? Because there's all different types of scores. Like Richard said earlier, there's a, a like a different restraint straining scores and mm. and all sorts of one out of a hundred and two hundred and so it's quite a complex field, isn't it? So where would someone if they want to use that as a health marker? Where would you advise them to start? I mean, there's plenty of freely available apps, and they'll all they all have their own little black spot algorithms that will give you a resilience score, a recovery score. Right. But I think the important measure to just keep an eye out for is it might come up in different com- uh, forms of like interbeat intervals or uh, time gaps between your heart rate, and that that's what we're essentially looking at—the time gap between each heart rate—and that 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 in itself is a great indicator to show the functioning of the autonomic mm-hmm. nervous system. And over time, if you do it over uh, many measurements, also looking at your standard uh, resting heart rate, the more the more you practice and the more variable you come, you can become in that relaxed state that your heart rate, your general heart rate, will start to decrease over time. Yeah. I'd, I'd, I'd advise just keep it simple. Yeah. If, if you can, get too far... It can be a complicated field, can't it? You can, yeah. Well, is it just about it's kind of monitoring it might be good and you can get to an apps and, 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 and things that can monitor that. But I guess without even without that, without the, the kind of the you know, buying a watch, for example, like me, because I think I'm a fatty crossfitter. Um, is it about just doing so that using the ethos of it as well? So I need to kind of stress myself in some way. So we know that, you know, for for lots for a lot of years people have exercised and no exercise is good. So we know that putting ourselves under stress in exercise is positive. But actually, I mean, there's, there's one, I, I think you do it on, um, cold showers. So that's a yeah. stressing situation. But having a cold shower is a really good stress. It's, it, it kind of stimulates the central nervous system, doesn't it? So doing something like that in moderation actually kind of helps with the heart rate variability. Yeah, and, and it's about exercising both branches of the autonomic nervous system. As much as you exercise the parasympathetic and exercise the sympathetic and have balance. I mean, and I'm sure as, as working in mental health, you come across people that have uh, experienced trauma. And often these people might have a sympathetic drive, high sympathetic drive, and they're, they're continuous in this fight and flight state. So when you tell something to them or something happens, they're immediately in that defensive state. I need to self-preserve. 
And what that is, is overactivation of the uh, sympathetic nervous system. And this is why we do sometimes like grounding techniques, like the deep breathing and getting them, is to balance that parasympathetic sympathetic activity to get them into the body. And the, the, way, the way the brain works is when, when we activate the sympathetic nervous system, a lot of our brain resources go to the amygdala, which is the center for the fight or flight response. So the function of the prefrontal cortex goes down. So if I give you an example, for example, have you ever been with a group of friends where one of them's turned around and said something against you and they've caught you off guard and you kind of just like that, 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 and nothing comes out of your mouth and you haven't got a comeback? No, I punched him once. <laughs> it wasn't Richard, it was someone else. Do you remember response. that night out that time? <laughs> but then uh, you, you might walk away and then you'd be like, oh, I could have said this or I could have said that. So in that moment when you've activated yeah. that sympathetic nervous system, because it's, it's it startled you, you're a bit of a shock, you didn't expect it, you're in that fight or flight state, you're not processing the information. Some people might see red mm. when they're just focused and you can't reason with them, trying to talk them down doesn't work because they're just in this sympathetic zone. And over time, when they're breathing and then um, getting into the parasympathetic, so once you get into the parasympathetic, the activity in the middle reduces and that's when you're walking away, you're not in that stress environment no more. So the activity and the, the thinking part of the brain, the prefrontal cortex, that increases. And that's when the, all, the whole comeback start coming to you. I could have said this and I could have said that, but yeah. often it's a bit too late, isn't it? Mm. I guess that's the thing, it's like when we look at evolution, isn't it? I would say, and I do this with patients, that time to think, if you look at, you know, you know, I don't know, 10,000 years ago when we were hunter-gatherers, time to think was when you were safe, when you were kind of in shelter, when there was food that was plentiful, when you were in a safe place with other people. You could think and you could solve problems. When you're face to face with a threat, for example, a predator, you're not going to sit there and go, well, what's my options with this thing then? What could I do? Is how big is it? You haven't got time to process it. You've got to react and you've got to either kill it or you've got to get out there. And I guess that's what we do now, don't we? So when we're threatened like that personally, it's you get out there on your attack rather than being able to kind of consciously reflect and, and, and mm. think about, think your way out of that situation. So it's, it's about survival response. Yeah. And it's it's so it's it's a powerful thing to say that because then it's it's kind of normalizing that to people as well, isn't it? To say, listen, how you're reacting isn't abnormal in a sense, it isn't weird. It's it's normal given the stimulus. However, we can reduce that stimulus um over time with a little bit of training. Yeah. yeah. So I suppose like the sense I'm making of it, say if you get into an argument with someone and that stimulates the the threat response. Having a having a decent heart rate variability or de decent emotional resilience per se mm -hmm. is <clears throat> that would that would pro would that probably increase your probability of you returning back to your baseline quicker so you can access more of the sympathetic response so you're able to respond in a in a more kind of way to someone if that if that's needed is that does that make sense? Yes, yeah, so when 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 you've exercised the kind of, kind of the parasympathetic and you're not you're not as quickly the threshold that you can take is increased. Mm. So you're not you're not going into that high kind of alert red red zone yeah. straight away. Yeah, you're not punching someone's face in. Yeah, so yeah, exactly. <laughs> you can tolerate it a bit more and a bit more, and the more you practice it. And some people I work with their patience is incredible. I mean, what I know from some other people would have kicked off and fighting throwing fists. Yeah. And they're just sat there really calm and you, because they're not they've exercised that parasympathetic response mm. not allowing them the body's not reacting it but it's given that the awareness and you just mentioned that there alan like knowing what's going on in the body and uh, being able to understand and regulate so that you don't get to that state then mm. we don't we don't we don't uh, we're not aware of what our emotions might be until yeah. it's too late yeah, but if we can give ourselves that moment to pause and process, then we can act more accordingly. Mm -hmm. Yeah, makes sense. What would you? I suppose because I think I think one of my biggest interests is kind of breathing stuff. What does what does breathing in particular? Because we know exercise has that resilience response to heart rate variability and overall health. What does breathing do 
to because I've been kind of reading some around kind of the Heart Math Institute stuff around kind of like heart brain harmony type stuff and how that creates coherence throughout the body. What what does breathing do for our heart? So great. Can you imagine um, you're walking down the street and you turn a corner and there's a huge tiger there? What's your first bodily reaction? Yeah, uh, well, yeah it's probably defecate. <laughs> <laughs> Which is a, is a response. Yeah, you're emptying yeah. out to run faster. Yeah, and it distracts the smell. In the milliseconds when you see that, or another example, oh, is it, crazy, it, uh, you're driving along, you're going to look on, uh, on the motorway and a car cuts right in front of you. What's the first bodily response? I hope you don't defecate yeah. there. <laughs> <laughs> your heart's going to probably go, Pam, it's going to go through the roof, isn't it? And what happens to your breathing? It becomes very erratic, doesn't it? You're like... Yeah, exactly. So your first response is like that sharp inhalation, isn't it? It's like... <gasps> yeah. And, and so every time we breathe in, what we're actually doing is, 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 is exercising the sympathetic response. When you get home from work on a Friday and you sit on that sofa, what's, your, what's the first kind of actions that come out of your mouth or noise? That out-breath. And that yeah. out-breath is exercising the parasympathetic nervous system. So back to your point about the breathing. So as humans, we don't actually take complete breaths. And Alan, you've been, Richard, you've read this through uh, the meditation and breathing. Yeah. Actually, only when we put our awareness to it is do we take, do we sit up, do we fully expend our lungs, use our diaphragm as we should for breathing? Because again, fast-paced society, we probably is, is we're lazy humans. Sometimes we don't breathe properly. Yeah. And uh, actually, when you wake up in the morning, and if you if you can be aware of your breathing, your breathing when you wake up in the morning, the first moment you wake up compared to the rest of your day is never the same. And when you're sleeping, it's it's usually a long, deeper breath that you're taking. So it's, it's exercise, when we're doing breathing exercises, if we do balance of so, uh, five seconds in, five seconds out, when we think back to we're in the in-breath, we're exercising the sympathetic and the out-breath, we're exercising the parasympathetic, we're stimulating both in a balanced way. Mm. Then those that are more advanced in doing breathing practices, they may have tried doing four seconds in and six seconds out, for example. And what that will do is exercise the parasympathetic nervous system a bit more. More soothing. Yeah, soothe, soothe, soothe breathing rhythms, yeah. It's yeah that's awesome. it, it, I guess because the breath is a, it's a physiological thing that kind of, again, this is links to mindfulness, isn't it? That the breath is the one thing that is automatic it happens all the time every minute of every day however we can you know there's a lot of other systems that are automatic you know endocrine system our digestive system they're all automatic but we don't just go right stop your digestion and then start your digestion again but we can we can manipulate our breathing can't we one of those deep kind of biological kind of processes that we can jump in and take hold of maybe if you come across someone with uh, that's having a panic attack what's their typical breathing like shallow it's at the chest top the chest isn't it it's yeah. they're not getting enough oxygen yeah and Alan, i know you mentioned that you've been reading about the the heart mass stuff i mean mm. i've advocated a lot of the heart mass stuff but the coherence is where you've got the synchronicity between the multiple systems in the body so you'll have a blood pressure variability which also informs your heart rate so we i mean this might get a bit technical but um we have baroreceptors in the body right. that uh, detect change of blood flow so if our muscles require more oxygen, our blood flow goes up, so it accordingly lifts our heart rate. Then we have breathing rate variability, which looks at signals from the brain downwards. So if we're, if we're doing exercise, for example, or we're going to prepare for a run, we know that we're going to have to increase our heart rate, so the exercise will do that. So when those systems are working together and they harmonize or are in synchronicity, you, you get the systems and that's where you're in that coherent state because everything's matching. You don't have that mismatch between the mind and the body. Yeah. And this is where the neuroception comes in again, where if we sat on the sofa, our internal environment might be relaxed. But when we hear that scream, it, it stimulates the uh, sympathetic response and you get that mismatch. So you probably break that coherence. Yeah, interesting. I read something a while back on uh, certain Buddhist monks in Nepal uh, and other regions that they kind of do 
deep breathing exercises for hours and hours, but intermittently throughout their meditation that lasts two or three hours at a time, they would they'd be in the sitting position, but then they would literally get up and scream as though they're really angry to shock their body out of the sympathetic into, uh, shock the body out of parasympathetic into sympathetic so they can kind of just get used to bringing themselves back down really, really quick. And I've, I've watched one video where he looked really calm and then he got up and thought he was just about to murder someone and then within seconds sat back down and returned to that state like instantly. So it's almost like a training thing. I mean, if you measured his heart rate variability, it'd probably be off the scales there, you know. <laughs> it, it, it's, uh, it's, it's exactly that, the ability to bring back to that calm state so fast. And that's what, what we want as humans. I mean, being angry is not always a bad thing. Being passionate about something and something that's happening, what we want, is never a bad thing. Being aroused is never a bad thing. But it's how we react after sometimes and being yeah. in, to that normal functioning, that, that healthy functioning for us is where we want to be at. And I guess working in secondary care as well, we work with a lot of people that really struggle in terms of managing their emotional, the regulation of their emotions, where they might kind of go from calm to 100 in kind of a matter of seconds and and, and become very irrational and erratic and, and, and really struggle to kind of balance that. And and you have to do a lot of work with people on kind of calming that kind of sympathetic reaction, don't you? Is, is that awareness for them, isn't it? I mean, something... I mean, as you probably work with them over time and they become more aware that like, triggers. So what 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 internal triggers? How do I know that I'm gonna get I'm getting angry? What's I mean, some people I mean, if you've worked with uh, for, uh, individuals that are medically unexplained physical symptoms, for example, some of them may be uh, sat in front of you with the shoulders close to the ears, very crunched, maybe leaning forward. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And to us, in, we can recognize that that's a stress position, but to them, they don't recognize that. That's probably because they've got the disconnect between the mind and the body, that the signals aren't clearly going up to the uh, to the brain for them to process that. That's a stress position. Yeah, I read something as well, Paris, about because uh, obviously when we when I was doing that project with you uh, beginning of this year uh, around kind of trauma and kind of stress responses, particularly when pe- people have been in like chronic stress response, is the psoas muscle, which is the internal muscles that connect the lower body to the upper body. So it's it's deep within kind of the, the abdominal area. And it's the muscle that literally gets you up out of your chair. So when you're sitting, the psoas muscle is activated, but it's called the stress muscles because it gets you up. But what people who are in chronic stress is these psoas muscles are constantly kind of constricted, which results in this hunched over kind of thing mm. and kind of yoga and all that type of stuff is good for kind of stretching that muscle out to release literally release the energetic kind of stress within within the muscles it's fascinating stuff yeah, like say alan i know i remember um, we've got the same physio don't we andy yeah and he talks a lot about this and he'll, he'll kind of put pressure points on you certain ligaments and he says so why are you doing that because some of them are massively painful um and i've nearly cried like a baby when he's like pressed in certain areas but he's and I initially thought he's doing that because I'm a bloke and he wants to see how how much pain I can tolerate. It's like a <laughs> macho thing. I'm like gritting my teeth while he's putting his thumb in these pressure points. But he kind of explained. He said when he's putting pressure on these certain parts of the ligaments, he's sending signals to the brain to relax and and it relaxes and then he can stretch it like your limbs out more and you can see that you then stretch further. So you might put a pressure point there it really hurts and then he'll stretch my arm out and it'll go twice as far back mm. and it's again it's that neurological link yeah. between the yeah. muscle or the ligament and, and the brain it's interesting and it's almost i think for particularly the way kind of mental health is going now is is really kind of adjoining the physical and the mental side of things as in it's mm. just one it's there's no difference between either of them is it is you know, when, you, when you're seeing lots of physical symptoms of anxiety, depression and stuff, there is, there is it's like yin and yang situation. They go hand in hand, don't there? Is, and I think particularly in the fields that we work in, particularly with, with people with serious mental health problems, they almost feel like the mental health problems is almost a weakness. But if sometimes if you can sell it as, well, this is a physical thing as well. This is a physical thing. And if you can train your heart train your breathing, get fit through exercise, 
that has a massive impact on your mental health, doesn't it? By just looking at physical stuff rather than kind of the psychological element. I'd say I think it's the, the cognitive sciences and the cognitive therapies have, have, have dominated mental health services for, for years and years. There's a lot of science to back it up. There's a lot of um, research and meta-analysis on things like CBT that it works. But I think now there's, a, there's like a new wave, isn't there? And a lot of that new wave kind of treatment is looking more physiological um, connecting the, the body and the mind. Um, you know, you're sat there kind of saying what are your thoughts, what are your emotions. It's about let's do some physiological stuff as well because it's just concentrating on your on your thoughts and your feelings and how you you act into everyday life and neglecting the, the physiological kind of processes going on. You're not doing the full job, are you? Mm. You're going to get a full full recovery. I mean, some research suggests that there's more information that goes from the heart to the brain than the brain to the heart. Right. So, 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 to, so to ignore the body in mental health is just yeah. is, 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 is sin. It's, it's, well, you talk about um, trauma and people with heartache and, and heart, the heart broken, um, and there's a lot of signs around that, that the, the, the heart can be traumatised through significant trauma and emotion. I read something a while back uh, on kind of when people, initial grief when they've lost someone, I think there's a TED Talks on it, actually. The, I think he's a neuroscientist or a cardiologist, one of the two. And he talked about, and he kind of looked at, like, heart scans and stuff and x-rays. And the heart itself under grief, literally for the first, I think it's for the first six weeks or first six days, one of the two, uh, it literally changes shape. The heart physically changes shape and swells because of the grief. So this emotional, psychological thing, physically changes something and you think if that can happen from like a really difficult perspective what can the mind do when you focus it through breathing or kind of exercise and stuff and how can we change our bodies through positive stuff because it it clearly has an impact on when it's kind of difficult things doesn't it yeah well i mean each each time you have a negative thought for example you have up to uh, 10,000 biochemical negative biochemical changes in the body So you can imagine if someone's having continuous negative thoughts, yeah. the amount of uh, the, the changes that happen in the body. But that can be counteracted by having positive thoughts. Mm-hmm. But the, we don't often, I mean, if, if you look at a day, a typical day, and you go home and you've got your partner or your kids and you say this happened, you're often, as humans, we seem to be programmed to focus on that negative bit that happened in the day or yeah. such and such happened. Out of the whole, if you think about your whole day, I mean, even if it's a 12, 12 hour day, and something might have happened for 20 minutes, but that 20 minutes can ruin the rest. If it's happened in the morning, it can ruin the rest of your day. Mm. But we never think of it as like if something really positive happens in the, the first 20 minutes when you're waking up, we never seem to have a, a positive rest of the day or yeah. it's not have as much of an impact as a negative mm. experience in the morning. It's almost like um, it's like a football match, isn't it? It's like watching the Borough and they get beat, but there was like 10 minutes where we had a decent little bit of play and we might have scored a goal. It's like, yeah, but we're rubbish still. We're terrible. Oh, we played amazing for 89 minutes and let a goal in a night. Concede. A terrible Whole game. game. Rubbish. I mean, I understand that I'm a Bradford City fan, so I understand the heart too. <laughs> <laughs> I do no better than Leeds. And uh, but that, that activates the, uh, the sympathetic nervous system as well when you're watching football. Well, yeah, I mean, the emotions of football are great, you know, it's, it's what probably keeps us taking going back to watch more and more. Um, and it's, it's a journey like no other, really, and mm. we, we keep going back. I mean, people say, well, I'm not coming back next season, this is absolute rubbish, but they'll be back. Yeah. They'll give the hard-earned money, and it's, it's that enjoyment, but it's also the passion. And with that passion of that love for the club is where sometimes some some, some of this stress, when, when they're not performing how you want them to be, and that anger comes from... It's coming from a good place. Yeah. But it's about balancing it. It is. That's an interesting point, isn't it? The football stadium. It's again. It's an interesting point, isn't it? Oh, right, go on, say. Uh, <laughs> it's a modern day church. Fo- football is the yeah. Oh, yeah, it's like a religion. Yeah. And it's just an interesting point that the people, you know, it is, can be quite stressful. No matter who you support, there'll always be bad times. But people do keep on coming back to watch something that will cause them stress. That's a good way of kind of saying, you know, this is what we're kind of trying to advocate in terms of your heart variability. And, it, you know, you'll go and see a football match and become stressed. 
through that match. You know, World Cup final, England playing a World Cup final against Germany, everyone's going to be so stressed, anxious, heart rate's yeah. going, it's cold sweat, oh my God, it's cold, the penalties. But you still put yourself through it. So, you know, that's it's positive we, stress, yeah. isn't it? And if we win at the end, you go, oh, that was amazing, wasn't it? And you think, this nostalgia heart, kind of kicks yeah. in, you think, no, it wasn't, it was horrendous, but <laughs> I think it was great. Yeah, yeah. I mean, when you get a last-minute winner and you and yeah. you probably played Paul yeah. game like that was a that was an amazing game and you you walk away so happy and you you, you probably go for the full range of emotion from a football game as well. You do, yeah, and that ability to kind of regulate. I suppose watching football is a really good way of practicing your emotions because you'll go from one quickly score a goal, give away a penalty, give away a goal within five minutes and. And you, yeah, your range of emotions yeah. that's happening. I mean, especially with this VAR these days. I mean, that's yeah. probably yeah. an element to it as well. Things the heart rate up a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. So, Paris, do you want to tell us a little bit about, because I know you do some work outside of kind of the NHS, don't you? Do you want to tell us a little bit about kind of the, the work you're doing there? Yeah, so, um, actually, the main bit of work that I've been focused on, they started actually at the start of uh, lockdown was with uh, Angela Kennedy, uh, Nigel Osborne and Chica Robertson. We've been doing a Wellbeing Live connection through music events. Right. And these are Thursday night events that we've had uh, up and coming musicians who come and perform live for people. And it's a group and a space where people can connect with one another and then just enjoy music. It's a safe space where you can express your emotions. Not often do we listen to music and express emotions simultaneously at the same time. And we know through research that music has great impact on mental health and well-being. Yeah. And just listening to it, I mean, people use music for different things, whether it's to arouse ourselves before a football game or a rugby match or relax ourselves at the end of the day. Music can be used for multiple things. And connecting with one another and using uh, music as a way to connect with one another as a small community has been a a great project that I've been involved with with the team. And you can find more information about that uh, on, on Paris Wellbeing website. This, this is a bit of the work that I've been doing with uh, working with organisations, trying to just increase mental health awareness in organisations. Mm. Because although there's been big progress over the last five, five or ten years or so, I still feel there's a lot of way to go. Oh, yeah, it's a healthy, happy society. We need to just keep plugging that away, one organisation by another. And be, I'm I'm really into my alternative therapies, singing, dancing, yeah, yoga, and just stimulating the brain in different ways that make it feel good. I mean, have you ever been to a gym session, got home, and th- felt really bad? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. You, you really, that, that, that release of serotonin and that happy feeling, and you feel great that you've made it, whether it's been your strongest session or not your strongest session, but you've made it, and that's an achievement, and you feel good about yourself. And it's that feel-good fact that we want because if we're feeling happy, we're going to have positive vibes, mm. and we're going to we're going to share that with the people around us. Yeah. That's, that's what's going to make our lives healthy, uh, happier, and healthier. Yeah, and I think more so now in terms of kind of lockdown and how businesses are working, where there's a lot more remote working, and there's a lot more uncertainty about kind of whether people can hold on to jobs and and what's going to happen in terms of that. So there's a lot more stress and there's going to be a lot more work there, certainly over the next few years. It's going to be, I think COVID is going to impact services, businesses and people's general mental health for, for years to come. So it's a really important time to latch on to that, isn't it? In yeah. kind of, I think, although I think in, in mental health services, we've got an idea. Most people have got an idea about their own well-being. Not everybody. But most people, but in terms of general businesses, so people, you know, the, the postie that's walking around might, you know, not get any mental health or well-being support from his business, but he still might be stressed. It's bringing it into the mainstream, isn't it? And, and yeah. saying this, it's okay to kind of address this, just like you would address your physical health. It's 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 help helpful and healthy to address your mental well-being as well. And I think we've we've had this conversation, Lords, around kind of. How in organisations, if if they just focused on staff well-being, they would have a, a better productive environment. People people are literally more productive when they're having fun compared to when they're stressed. Yeah. Well, you go to a, isn't it? To go to a factory and there'll be mechanics working on the machines in the factory, making sure that they're fine, they're serviced, and they're well-oiled. But then you'll have loads of staff that don't get any kind of support and treatment to be well-oiled and, and maintained. No. Yeah. 
And then just the machine in, in a sense of running a, a system and a business than a piece of machinery. Uh, it's a value, isn't it? I mean, how valued do you feel in your role? And if you feel valued and you're doing, you, you enjoy what you're doing, you're going to keep going back and keep doing yeah. it because you feel good about it. If you feel like you're just a spare part or you're just doing the job for the sake of it, then your interest is going to lower and lower and lower to a point where you're just doing for the sake of it. And then where's the enjoyment? I mean, if you look at lifespan, for example, 80 years or so, we spend 50, 60 years of that working. Why would you spend that 50, 60 years or so doing a job that you don't enjoy or doing a job that's meaningless, that doesn't enhance your life? Yeah, totally. So, yeah, there's lots and lots of work. There's going to be lots of work for everyone, really, isn't there? Particularly, it's becoming more mainstream and more common to focus on well-being at work and i think that yeah it's we're on the we're on the turn of the cusp aren't we with regards to i think one of the important messages and i heard people like oh well when do we go back to normal when do we go back to normal i don't think we go back to normal we go back to a new way of living it's i mean organizations have learned that you you, they can allow employees to work from home they're saving money because they're probably not playing as much for rent space for example but from, for example, for me, I work in Durham and travel from Newcastle. I'm saving 35, 40 minutes a day just driving mm-hmm. per there and then back. So I'm, I'm, I'm getting an extra hour and a half in my day that I could spend on me. And mm-hmm. that that promotes my well-being, where I could do something for me rather than just a mundane drive that, to work. Uh, yeah. I mean, Fascinating. So, Paris, where can people find you? Is it pariswellbeing.co.uk? Yeah. Listeners, go and have a look because I've had a look on the website early and it's fascinating stuff that you're kind of doing outside kind of the NHS as well. Thank you. Thank you. It's been a pleasure speaking, Paris. Uh, thank you both, Alan and Richard. <laughs>